You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL, and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So if you haven't seen the news recently, you might want to check up on the different people talking about burnout and different distressors in our veterinary medicine, especially in emergency rooms and ICUs that are really taking a toll on not only veterinarians, but our beloved support staff, our technicians, our nurses, our ACAs front door staff, like everyone involved is getting a little bit, you know, at the end of their leash here um, with the stress of the job. Um, So we brought on a fantastic veterinarian, uh, Dr. Nathan Peterson, who's a board certified emergency and critical care veterinarian at Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. And he recently did a study that was talking about the frequency of futile care Um, and how that contributes to the burnout that we see in our peers. And with over 99% of veterinarians he surveyed saying that they encountered this type of care, um, we thought it would be really important to bring him on the show to talk to you guys. So please help me welcome Dr. Nathan Peterson. Hi, Dr. Nathan. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to kind of dive into the study. Um, But before we go into all that, Tell us a little bit about like your background and why you wanted to go into veterinary medicine and then what led you to an ECC uh, residency. My journey to the veterinary profession started pretty young. My dad was a um, veterinarian. He owned a single doctor um, general practice in Sparks, Nevada. Um, I started working at his practice on weekends, I don't know, probably in seventh or eighth grade. And um, I enjoyed it. I was sort of drawn to the profession at that point. I enjoyed seeing the connection that he had with his clients and, and with his patients. Um, so I know it almost feels like it was sort of a foregone conclusion that I would become a veterinarian. Yeah, it's like it was uh, almost your birthright there <laughs> with your dad's practice. <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. I never felt forced into it, but um, I don't know. I just enjoyed, enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we can all... Uh say that we definitely partake in that enjoyment that uh, is unique to our profession. (laughs) So then what made you choose emergency and critical care as your specialty? What drew you in? When I was in vet school, my initial plan was to general practice. And about halfway through vet school, I started working at a local emergency and referral hospital on nights and weekends and saw sort of the impact of an internship on the, sort of just the, the confidence that the doctors had. So I decided that seems like something I needed to do. I thought in my fourth year of vet school, I was going to be a neurologist. When I started my internship, I, I did my internship and residency both actually at Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston. I clearly recall having a, a patient with seizures on my first block. And I thought, this is great. This is definitely what I want to do. And then um, I received phone calls every time that the dog had a seizure for the next few months and decided this isn't really what I want to do. And I ended up having a mentor um, who suggested I consider ECC. And it just sort of felt, again, kind of like a natural fit. I like the flexibility of being able to do a lot of different things. You know, I'm not pigeonholed into dealing with one specific body system. Every day is different, uh, which is what's exciting. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love that you went to Angel. I live about an hour from Boston. So <laughs> they're like a hometown hospital. <laughs> yeah, they're really amazing. I was, um, COVID kind of, you know, made the waters muddy, but originally I was supposed to go there for um, radiology, I think. Angel has a really good um, reputation for all their specialties out there. Yeah, no, I, I had a great time there. Um, it was It was a good place to learn and I really enjoyed the city, so... Mm. It is beautiful, except when it's frigid <laughs> in the wintertime. <laughs> Although Ithaca at Cornell, it has to be at least that bad or worse. Yes, Ithaca is colder and generally snowier. So, Do you like the cold weather, though? Maybe you're a cold lover. Growing up, I thought I, I really liked it um, in Boston. Um, and I was in New York City immediately after that. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I spent the last 11 years in Los Angeles. and you know, it softened me up a bit. Um, so it's, it's been a challenge to, to reacclimate, but I do like the cold. Yes. I feel that on a spiritual level because I just graduated from Western in Los Angeles. So I was there for, I was there for like three and a half years. So coming back to live in Massachusetts afterwards, (laughs) I'm like always in a parka unless it's 75 degrees. It's a bit of a shock, but this spring I finally, I finally feel like I got it. 50 degrees is short sleeve weather again. So. Wow. Yep. <laughs> definitely, definitely reacclimated. You know, what kind of was your inspiration for this study? Did you have a lot of um, like personal experience with, you know, veterinarians talking about feudal care or how did you even come across that term? Or was it something that you use yourself frequently? You know, my journey into into studying futility and and um, I guess bioethics in general um, started at the beginning of my internship. I think when I graduated vet school, I felt like I had everything figured out in terms of ethics. There was a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, and it didn't take long into into my practice to recognize that there were a lot of shades of gray. Right, things that seemed so starkly correct or incorrect, um, it, it quickly gets muddied. And it was something that I recognized as an intern, you know, and, and I thought this was just going to be sort of my own personal struggle to try to come to terms with with what's the right thing to do. But over the course of my career, um, I've had the privilege to work with some really fantastic technicians. I think what I started to find was that as distressing as these situations were for me, they were more stressful for the technicians because, you know, I I got to have the conversations with the owners about what I thought was the best thing to do for their pet. Uh, I got to have those conversations about options. And then I got to write an order on a treatment sheet and go see my next patient. And it was the technicians who were providing that minute to minute care for days on end that really, I think, struggled with this. And I remember having several conversations with some of my technicians about the stress they were feeling encountering these patients. Uh, And that really was my motivation because I found that they really felt powerless to have a say. So that was where my interest sort of started. Uh, I didn't really know how to explore the concerns that I had. Uh, I was fortunate enough, again, to have a great mentor uh, that I met during my internship, 
Um, she subsequently has completed a, a master's degree in bioethics and is affiliated with the, um, the Harvard uh, Center for Bioethics. And I got in touch with her and, and we talked a little bit about my concerns and, and my, my thoughts. And uh, she encouraged me really to, to try to, to look at it and, and figure out if we could First, just document how frequently this occurs. Um, is it a problem that that a lot of veterinarians encounter, or is it is it not widespread? You know, with the plan to after we sort of document the frequency with which it occurs, I think really get into trying to determine what the impact is on people's on veterinarians, and, and for me, more importantly, more specifically, technicians and support staff, uh, what the impact is on their well being. I don't think I really thought about it that way because, you know, as the doctor, you're the one who gets to hear the reasons why we're choosing that care option plan that we're choosing. And then the technicians just see the the plan orders and they don't really, you know, get the opportunity to really have an input discussing with the owner or, um, you know, kind of weighing in how they see the patient declining or improving on the plan with you know, wishing that they could do something more or better and not understanding maybe it's financial or whatever reason that the people can't do it. And then you see this animal maybe not getting gold standard if it's not possible or however you're managing it, that it could take a pretty hefty emotional toll when they're just doing, you know, not everything that they probably think that they could do or that they want to do. Yeah. And I think for me, importantly, the, the, you know, the idea around futility is pretty well, well studied in, in human medicine and the, this idea of moral distress, sort of knowing what you think the right thing to do is, but, but being unable to do it. I think for me, the, the problem with futility was that um, in a handful of cases every year, I had owners who, in my, my opinion, sort of didn't know when it was time to stop. Um, they were requesting treatments from me that I felt were unfair for the patient um, because in my view, the patient was, was not going to benefit at all from, from continuing treatments. And so those were the situations that I found really distressing um, was not necessarily the cases where I didn't feel like I could do enough, um, but were the cases where sometimes I felt like maybe I'm doing too much. Uh, and those were the cases that really the technicians were concerned about because, you know, they would have a patient that to our eyes appeared to be suffering, sometimes suffering greatly. And we would have owners who just kept asking, what's the next thing we can do? Or, you know, we just have to keep going. We have to keep going for whatever the reason is. You know, I think that's really what kind of got me interested in this is, is when, when can I draw a line? Can I draw the line when I came in and, and would write a bunch of orders on a treatment sheet? And then move on to my next patient. And my technicians would say, every time I, I do a treatment, I feel like I'm torturing this pet. I feel like all I'm doing is contributing to their ongoing misery and suffering. Uh, and, and they felt really powerless because, you know, they, they can't really, uh, in their eyes, refuse to, to do treatments. So, you know, I think it really puts them in a, in a difficult spot. And I think to some extent, veterinarians are in the same predicament um, because, you know, we we might feel somewhat powerless to, to be able to say, no, we're not going to provide certain treatments, um, even if we don't think they're likely to be beneficial, because ultimately 
in, in most states, pets are viewed as property. And I think that we're sort of maybe not trained, but I think a lot of us sort of feel like we, we have an obligation to ultimately do what the owner wants to do because it's their pet and it's their decision. Um, so we can sort of feel trapped in, in that pathway also. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. I love my fur babies so much, but when they're stressed out, it makes me stressed out. Mine hate loud noises like thunderstorms and fireworks, and sometimes they just don't want to be left home alone. To help keep your dogs calm in moments of stress, use Brave Paws Anxiety and Stress Support Chewables for Dogs. These plant-based chewables promote calm behavior with natural ingredients that have been clinically studied. Did I mention they're fast-acting and non-drowsy? I especially love that the natural ingredients are sustainably sourced. How cool is that? Want to learn more? Check out mybravepaws.com. Your dog will be happy you did. Yeah, and I was surprised that almost everybody or over 99% of people had dealt with this. So it's definitely a widespread issue. Do you have any ways of suggesting how veterinarians should navigate those conversations or um, any framework for people to kind of talk to owners when they know that pet, you know, it's their time, but the owner is not ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that for each veterinarian, I think there are they're going to have to make decisions for, for themselves about sort of the, their willingness to tolerate certain um, decisions where their sort of uh, their moral hard line is going to be with that. I think things that have helped me are to try to understand where the owners are coming from in terms of what types of things they think are valuable for their pet, also what's valuable for them. The way that I found was best to try to mitigate the impact of feudal care on my technical staff and to some extent on me because I didn't have to explain it separately to my technicians was to include them in, in the discussions. You know, in my practice in, in emergency critical care and, and spending a lot of time in the ICU, I, I would have owners visit um, twice a day. Uh, sometimes twice a day for seven, 10, 14 days in a row. And the technicians um, actually not only form a really close bond with the pets that they're taking care of, but oftentimes they really can form a pretty close bond with the clients too. I come up and say hi during visiting. I answer a couple of questions and then they spend the next hour sitting with their pet um, and they enter into conversations with the technicians. So I found that... Um, sometimes maybe counterintuitively holding those difficult conversations um, during visiting with the technicians present may not have led to the resolution necessarily that I wanted, but I think went a long ways toward, again, mitigating the, the moral distress that I felt and, and that the technicians felt because we could all see that we were on the same, if not on the same page, at least we could see where each other were coming from and why decisions were being made. So. I think um, I would encourage um, veterinarians who find themselves in that position where they seem to be sort of intractably at odds 
to really make an attempt to, to understand where the owners are coming from. And if they're having difficult conversations with their technicians regarding ongoing care to include them in the conversations with the owners. Yeah, absolutely. I agree to have everyone on the same page and, you know, know that they're hopefully trying to make everyone move towards the same goal, no matter, you know, what that looks like for the patient, the best goal, hopefully in mind with the patient's best best interest in mind, maybe not, you know, necessarily the owners because they're not the one that needs to receive the care. It's the the patient. So it should be. Do you think there should be a a switch maybe to more of of a patient-centered approach? Or do you think that might not be possible because pets are still considered property under the law? You know, I think that a a patient-centered approach is certainly the way that, that I try to practice. And that's how I try to frame those discussions with owners. I think the challenge that I have struggled with, and I don't have a good answer for, is that um, who decides what's in a pet's best interest? Is it me, sort of a disinterested third party? Um, I I don't know this pet. I don't know what they enjoy. Um, I don't know necessarily what's important to them if, if we ever could. So am, am I in a better position to decide what's in the best, best interest or is the owner? And I don't know if there's an easy answer for that question, but it's one that I certainly struggle with. And I try to remind myself when I'm faced with these with these situations that for the most part, the owners believe that they're acting in their pet's best interest. It's just that my definition of, or my belief of what's in the pet's best interest is different. So I think finding that common ground um, is really where the key lie, the, the key to the solution is in, in terms of resolving these problems. If we can approach the situation understanding we both want what we believe is going to be in the pet's best interest, we're already on the same page. Uh, and then we just have to find where we can come together on, on moving forward. And have you started to try to define what feudal care is in the veterinary profession? I know there, it mentioned in the article that there isn't a uh, consensus on the definition. I didn't know if you had one that you like or are trying to um, build. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's important, um, you know, even on the human side, there's not a really great definition for, for what constitutes feudal care, um, although I think they're probably a little bit closer than we are. And I think it's important that we draw a clear distinction between um, feudal care and hospice care and, and palliative care. And that's one reason I think it's important that we strive to establish definition for futility. I think um, certainly hospice care um, really with its um, focus on um, not necessarily aggressively treating an underlying disease, but on on ameliorating symptoms. Uh, There's a place for that. And and, um, I absolutely do not believe that type of care to be futile. I think one of the things that that I think sort of surprised me in this and, and that I think is important to talk about was that many of the respondents, although 99% 99% of the respondents had encountered what they believed to be feudal care. Uh, a, quite a large proportion of them believed that that care somehow benefited the clients. So they were sort of drawing this distinction between care that benefited the patient and care that benefited the client. So I think what we did in, in our paper was we really tried to, well, at least we proposed um, 
a definition for feudal care. And the definition that we sort of proposed was that feudal care really occurs when the continuation of current treatment or the institution of new treatment is not expected to alter the clinical course of the patient, even if such treatment confers some benefit to the owner. Because I think that uh, what we found was, like I said, that most of the respondents, when they were asked to define futility, either responded with something like, um, futility happens when when treatments can no longer reach a physiologic goal and about an equal number felt that futility was when we continued treatment in the face of like diminishing returns. Yeah, basically um, uh, condemned to, to suffer with no um, improvement on the horizon. Um, so, you know, the veterinarians appear to be really placing the, the patients front and center when they consider futility um, and they consider the care to be futile if it's not going to benefit the pet. Um, but like I said, a large number acknowledged that they believe that providing that care somehow provided um, a benefit to the client. Yeah, because maybe they didn't have to say goodbye to their pet for another how many days, but if it's you know having a negative impact on their pet, then it's not really in their best interest. Yeah, and, and I think one of the questions that we asked was sort of centered on, on why did you if you have provided this care, if you've seen it provided, why was it provided? Uh, and um, a large number said the top two answers in both of those categories were one, because the owners um, wanted to make sure that they had done everything that they could. And the second was that um, there seemed to be a disconnect sometimes between the veterinarian's understanding of the pet's prognosis and the owner's understanding of the pet's prognosis. Um, the first one, the, the try everything that you can, that's probably what most of our respondents were referring to when they said that they thought that this had benefited the, the owners in some way, is, is that the owners could have peace of mind that they left no stone unturned. They'd done absolutely everything they could. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. And talking about feudal care and maybe, you know, the transition to talking about hospice care, like instead, you know, kind of moving the, the client's expectations toward that and talking about um, advocating for euthanasia. I know it's a very uncomfortable topic for anyone to have to bring up, but do you think there's anything that is out there for communication building for that kind of topic or, you know, what, what could we do that would make it less stressful, I guess, for those conversations to happen when you're seeing this feudal care come up? That's a tough question because these conversations, I think, are always stressful. I, for one, certainly don't like to feel like I'm advocating or 
pushing an owner to make a decision to euthanize. Um, for me, that just doesn't feel good. So, you know, I think that, um, again, if, if I can approach those conversations coming from the, the point of view that we both are trying to do what we think is going to be best for this pet, um, and then trying to find common ground, what is it exactly that, that you want for your pet? Is it that you really feel that you need more time? Is it that you feel like you want the time that you have to be better quality? Are you really concerned that your pet not experience pain or distress? Um, really trying to find out what the most important aspects of that pet's experience are gonna be for the owner. Uh, and then trying to find a way to provide that for them. I think that the world of palliative medicine and, and hospice care in, in veterinary medicine is vastly underdeveloped. Um, and I hope to see a, a lot of progress in the future on, on those types of care, because I think that that's a, an appealing potential solution for some of these scenarios where um, we might be able to offer a structured form of care where um, we make an intentional deviation away from trying to treat the underlying disease to trying to manage the symptoms. I think that we just don't, uh, unfortunately, at this point, have a really well-developed system in, in most places to achieve that. Uh, I think certainly there, there are some, some people out there and some groups who are, are I think doing fantastic work, but we're just not quite there yet as a profession. Do you think that um, there might be uh, like a lack of understanding on um, maybe the, the client side on perceiving their pet suffering? Do you think like that contributes to it when, you know, veterinary professionals are very acutely aware because we're around it all the time, but some of it can be, you know, pretty subtle, especially in our feline friends. So do you think, you know, maybe like having those conversations and reinforcing, you know, that the signs of discomfort and suffering to the client so that they're aware that these things have hap are happening and are in place. Because I, sometimes I, I just don't think the gravity of the situation, I don't think is that they're aware of all the time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that came out of our study, I, I mentioned this sort of disconnect between owner's perception of the prognosis and a veterinarian's perception of the prognosis. To your point about suffering, I think that suffering might be something that we as veterinarians talk about between ourselves about the experience a pet is having. We talk to our technicians about that. I think I, I can only speak for myself, but I know that early in my career, I was pretty reluctant to tell an owner if I thought their pet was suffering because I didn't want to burden them with that guilt. Um, you know, I was worried about what the impact of me verbalizing that to an owner would be if I say, I think that your pet is suffering. I was concerned for, for their well-being. I didn't want them to feel like um, they had done bad by their patient or their pet. I now am a pretty strong believer in, in having that conversation openly. And if we can come together with an owner on what we believe constitutes suffering, then I think that can help us through these situations. But if we're afraid to discuss suffering, then these conversations will continue to be sort of opaque and difficult to navigate. It's so difficult, but you know, I think just the fact that your client is there seeing you, talking to you, asking about treatment, they're already doing the best thing that they could do, right? Is seeking medical advice, which means that they really value and they love their pet. 
and they're trying to do the best thing. So really giving them an honest but soft discussion (laughs) about suffering is definitely not fun, but it's our obligation, unfortunately. And I think that we're, as a profession, we're, we're probably pretty well equipped to have that conversation from one direction, right? Where owners approach us and say, do you think my pet is suffering because I'm considering euthanasia? And I think that we're we're more comfortable with that side of the conversation about consenting or agreeing to, yeah, we think it's probably time. I think that there's a little bit more um, reticence to raise the issue from our end to say, Unfortunately, at this point, I, I think that your pet is suffering and, and we really should consider euthanasia. That feels like a hard thing to do to, to say that to an owner. And it is a hard thing to do from my experience, but that has really led to, to better conversations and communication with clients in, in certain circumstances, you know. So as, as difficult as it is, again, making sure I'm on the same page, maybe my definition for suffering doesn't have to involve intractable pain. It probably comes before you reach that stage. And some owners might consider, well, if my pet's not in pain, then I don't think that they're suffering, you know? And so just having those conversations about, well, what is suffering? And and if we can agree um, at some point that we think what your pet is experiencing is, is suffering, then those conversations become easier. I know you deal with these tough conversations a lot. Is there anything that you personally do or that you and your team like to do to kind of release that tension or that that heavy emotion afterwards or, you know, dealing with kind of just all that that really tough conversation in order to loving your job and not feeling those feelings of burnout? I'm, I'm assuming everybody that's in the veterinary profession experiences this. Um, you know, there's a lot of gallows humor in the ICU. So that's probably the the most ready way to, to alleviate some of that distress. You know, I'm I'm sort of a, a natural introvert, but having conversations with um, my technicians to talk about the experience that we've had with other veterinarians to talk about the experience we've had is, is to me the, the single most beneficial thing that I have found you know, to sit down and talk with a technician after a tough case and say, this is how the experience was for me and to listen honestly to how the experience was for them, you know, and, and just to to continue talking about it, uh, I think is, is the best way uh, that I have found to deal with it. it. Really leads to a sense of we're in this together. I have support uh, as challenging as these situations are. I, I don't feel alone. Um, and, and that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. At least if you're going through hell, you're going through hell together. Absolutely. Having a fantastic team is just, it makes just life and work so much better when you can go in and know that those people have your back and you, veterinary humor is the niche (laughs) type of humor that the most niche I've ever seen, but I really like it. And I, it definitely, I always try to be kind of humorous because it just helps lighten the mood whenever whenever things look bad or might be bad it's a little laughter goes a long way yeah absolutely i think that you know if i was an outsider listening in i might not appreciate some of the some of the jokes but um they do oftentimes help to alleviate the heavy tension that that um is sometimes almost palpable in in the icu surrounding these types of tough cases yeah absolutely and I bet human medicine does the same thing because that has to be just as stressful. And with 
future studies, what are you looking into for your next study? Are you going to survey like a different survey for veterinarians or are you going to go more toward the technician nurse side of utility? Yeah. You know, like I said at the beginning, my motivation for really exploring this um, was to help my technicians and the support staff. It's not just the technicians, it's animal care attendants, it's the front desk staff that has to you know, answer the phone and talk to these clients. So it's really the, the entire team. My next goal, I think, you know, sort of two different goals. Um, my next immediate goal is to really uh, delve more into the impact on technicians. Unfortunately, as a profession, you know, and, and many people acting in technician roles that that um, are not um, licensed, it makes reaching a broad group of technicians a little bit more challenging. They're a tougher group to survey. But uh, I think that we found a way to begin to have some conversations with technicians and, and support staff surrounding futility and what the impact is on them. I think my big fear or concern is that these types of cases lead to a lot of attrition in the technical field, if not the veterinary field. Um, I think that um, you know technicians, maybe to a greater extent than veterinarians themselves, get into the job because they really have a passionate love for animals and, and helping them. They're certainly not in it for the money. You know, when they feel like they're contributing to the suffering of pets, it, it takes a heavy toll. So that's really what my next focus is going to be on is, is um, to see if I can begin to quantify the toll that it's taking on technicians and, and attrition from the profession. I think the second aspect is is a little bit more sort of wellness centered to the veterinarian. Um, now that we know that we think futility is is fairly ubiquitous as an experience at some point in, in a career, talk about you know how does that impact our well being and um, how can we begin to to mitigate those those effects? Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really interesting to see those statistics and to see the answers that. Um, the support staff give as well to really get a better picture, um, you know, because we only have one side of it, you know, we don't see their perspective all the time. So it's really um, helpful to be able to see from their lenses as well about what's going on. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think from my perspective, the ICU technicians, they have the hardest job in the hospital. You know, it's a grind. They have treatments every hour. They're, they become really bonded to their patients and, and their owners. It's a real grind. If there's something that we can do as a profession to, to help retain those fantastic people, people who really have a, a love and, and passion for, for helping animals, I think we need to figure it out and we need to try to do it. Yeah. Do you have any ideas off the top of your head? What would anything that might help? It specifically centered around futility, I think it's giving them some some power, at least so that they can can feel like their voice is being heard, um, allow them to be a participant in the discussions with the owners, and at least uh, be privy to the conversations um, in an unvarnished and honest way so that they can feel um, at least empowered to question what's happening um, and to raise concerns about it. Uh, and to provide a sounding board for them when they feel uncomfortable with, with the care that they're being asked to provide. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy.
Hey, this is Omar Lopez. And Eric Meyer. And we want you to check out our new podcast, Working Class, where two lawyers from opposite sides of the law discuss the hottest employment issues today from both the employee and the employer perspective. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. Well, I'm really looking forward to your future studies, Dr. Peterson. Um, thank you for so much for coming on the show today. I think we um, had a, a really good discussion about a tough topic, but it, I definitely think it's something that we um, it's worth having the, the discussion about for sure. Yeah, like I said, the, the conversation is challenging, but um, I think it, it needs to happen. So uh, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you having me on. I mean, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you to all our Vet Candy listeners. Um, I hope that you got something out of today's discussion and realized that if you're dealing with um, situations of feudal care, that you know you're definitely not the only one, and where there's people out there trying to improve the situation and make things better on the doctors, the support staff, everyone involved in the hospital. And uh, we'll continue to bring you the best new voices in veterinary medicine and people that are really trying to make a, a difference for everybody and make our lives a little bit better. So catch us next time on Vet Candy IRL and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.